ministries over there in the mission home. And significant, very, very significant ministry. And a message, too, because uh, letting our lights shine, it is something that, uh, you hear that. Sometimes we don't always know what it means, but sometimes we experience that, some of you on a daily basis, in very, very dark places, and some of you perhaps even in your own homes. That's a message good for us to hear this morning as we begin. Would you pray with me as we begin, as we begin today? <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather here. We thank you for the opportunity to allow our lights to shine for you. We thank you for this gathering here this day. Uh, we acknowledge you as the most holy one of Israel, the God of gods and the King of kings. You are the great one of all the earth. I pray that our minds and our hearts today would be focused upon you, the word that you have for us, Father. I pray that we will have ears that are hearing your Holy Spirit's voice this day. We trust you with that. Uh, we look forward to what you're going to teach us today, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to be talking about roots and looking at the book of Acts. If you still have your Bibles there from the previous scripture reading, you turn to uh, Acts, the book of Acts. And what I'd like to do um, is going to be a bit different, but hang in there with me. Um, we've, done, we've approached the study of scripture in a number of different ways, but I want to ask you a few questions first to start out with today. First of all, why do I come here each Sunday? Why to this particular building? How can my own thoughts and attitudes and actions possibly affect the spiritual life of this church? Why should I be a part of this? Can I just sit back and observe? Another question that brings us to the book of Acts is, how could a 2,000-year-old account possibly have anything to do with Good News Bible Church today? It's coming to knowing and understanding our own roots. And that's what I want to be talking about. And how the roots that we're talking about from the book of Acts are our roots because the church that began in the book of Acts was not them, it was us. We are part of that today. The church has gone through the centuries and here we are today, 2,000, later, 2000 years later. And a study of the roots is always fascinating. I don't know if any of you have done that in your own families. I went back and looked a bit and poked and prodded, don't do that too much, in your own family line and, and find out where you came from, found out that my, on my mother's side, the Noyce family arrived from England in the year 1632 and landed on a small beach in Massachusetts called Newbury. Now, I don't know if they were aiming for the Plymouth Rock and missed, I'm not sure, but at any rate, they landed there, and there is a monument there today with the name Nicholas Noyce on it, and that's the ancestors of my parents. Um, my great-grandfather was, a, uh, uh, was in the uh, Massachusetts Regiment in the Union Army in the Civil War, and then on down through. It just, it's just fascinating to read all that and, and realize where, he, where that came from. And then on my father's side, um, a boat came over from Sweden uh, in the year 1903 and landed in Boston Harbor. I don't know, if, again, if they were aiming for Ellis Island and missed. I don't know. Maybe a pattern there. But at any rate, they landed there, and there was, on that boat was a family of five. And Sven Daniel was the, was the uh, father on that boat. And uh, he had some children with him. And when they arrived, the name was uh, a, a kind of a... And I, I, I don't speak Swedish, but it was a schostrand. 
or something like that. At any rate, the person who was writing the name of the book couldn't say it either, so they wrote Strand, and that's how we got the name Strand. And also on that boat was a little two-year-old, and his Swedish name was Johan, and they gave him the name Harry Timothy John Strand. That was my grandfather. He was born in Sweden and came over on that boat. It was just fascinating. I, I mean, there's more, I won't bore you with the details, but to look back at the roots and just to see where you came from, it helps you understand. And especially looking at the book of Acts, by God's Spirit's guidance, we can learn, we can begin to understand where we came from and learn some things about us here and now because it's got to affect us here and now. It can't just be a, a dry, historical, Ken Burns special study of the book of Acts. It's got to say something to us. And that's what I'd like to, like to do. Um, just kind of a disclaimer, I'm not going to do a comprehensive study of ecclesiology, the study of the church. can't do that. don't have time. Also, I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse verse of the book of Acts. That would uh, be a couple years, I think, probably. So what I like to do is kind of a Google Earth view I don't know if you have any, have any of you ever tried that Google Earth. Or it's a great time waster where you can go over and look and see all the different houses and look at everybody's and see my parents' car was in the driveway when they took the... I wasn't stalking. I was just, I was just checking. But um, it's just very fascinating. That's what I'd like to do with the book of Acts. Kind of like a flyover. Um, and then occasionally stop, take a picture and say, this applies to us. And pull out some applications because we need to walk away with something today. So that's what we kind of like to do um, in our, in our um, time today in the book of Acts. I need to point out that Acts is an illustration of the early church. The letters written by some of these early church leaders, the epistles like Corinthians, Ephesians, and Timothy, and so on, uh, are noted as instruction. It's important to know the difference. If some would take the account of this narrative and make it instructive or didactic literature, it is not. 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 and 2 Peter are all specific instructions of how the church is structured and how it should function. So Acts is an illustration. The letters are instruction. Acts is a transitional period. That's a buzzword. We've been using that a lot lately. It's a transitional period. And come to find out that basically the history of the church is a history of transition. That's what it was. From one thing to the next, from one person to the next, to this persecution, to this place, and so on. It's a history of transition. Well, the study of Acts is the story of the church. And one thing that helped, um, one of the things that uh, those that are involved here in the church, and perhaps you can identify with this, where daily, perhaps, in some cases, you're involved in the life of the church and the nuts and the bolts and how to do this and how to do this. And as an elder, um, that was much of the responsibility for years of just the day-to-day -day responsibilities and just not being able to, at times, just be able to look up and over and say, oh, so that's what we're about because you're so much involved in what's going on. The 12-month uh, sabbatical that, was recently, that I recently ended was fantastic. It was a great way to be able to do that. Um, that's something that's built into our Constitution that each of the elders is required to take a 12-month sabbatical. And for that, I'm, we're, we're very thankful. Uh, but what it did was enable me to kind of sit back and, and take some, some observations, be able to see things instead of just doing all the time, stepping back and saying, oh, and things started to come together. I began to understand some things, and I knew them before because I had studied Acts before, you have as well. But stepping back and saying, some of this applies to where we are here now. 
we need to be reminded of it. And they might be some familiar stories that you hear, but we need to be reminded because in the progression of our church, as we're becoming more like Christ, there are steps that we need to take that we have not. If we had, it would be a perfect church. We're not. So we need to come back to this and study and read and, and understand what it means for us. Just a review for the book of Acts. Um, it was written as a narrative by Luke, who's a very careful historian, has some wonderful detail in there some, in, in places. And um, it could be, I know traditionally it's called the Acts of the Apostles. But in reality, when you read it, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. He happened to use the Apostles. Uh, but it's very strong in, in um, relating what took place in those early years of the church. It covers approximately 30 years uh, from start to finish. Interesting, that's, that's about what the Gospels, each of the Gospels covered, only they spent an enormous amount of time on Jesus' three years of ministry here on this earth, whereas Luke takes uh, from the time that Jesus ascended back to heaven all the way up until when Paul was in prison um, and spans 30 years with almost 100 different characters. Uh, a significant amount of information in there. could be called the church, the early years. Uh, Acts is both the history and the theology. You see, the same God who worked through the Holy Spirit in Acts is the one who works today in believers. I think there's so much packed in those 28 chapters, we get the idea that Luke may have left a lot out, um, but the events are representative examples of what God was doing all over the world. It begins with a resurrected Jesus ascending to heaven, ends with Paul under house arrest, for proclaiming the reality of the person of the Lord Jesus. So it begins with that event. Paul ends up in prison for proclaiming that event. I'd like to start in um, Acts chapter 4 in, that, in our overview, bringing us up to speed to Acts chapter 4. Remember, we have Jesus' ascension and his command to go to all the nations. Um, and then in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the, what we mark as the beginning of the church, the physical, visible church, the believers that were there, um, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that began, began the church. Uh, and then Peter's sermon following that, which to all that were listening, he wasn't saying, coming, inviting, and say, hey, be a part of this, it's fun. He was saying, repent. That was his message in the sermon that he gave in Acts chapter 2. Uh, many, many people becoming believers. Uh, from this, when they saw what God was doing and the Holy Spirit working and heard Peter's message of repentance and were convicted, came to know Christ. Then in chapter 3, we don't know the time span between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, but a story that Luke records in great detail, and that is the healing of the layman. Uh, now, he recorded this because it caused such a huge uproar. Because here it was, just a couple months removed from when Jesus went back to heaven, and he had been doing all these healings and proclaiming the kingdom of God and so forth. And then here come Peter and John, two of his followers, come into the temple, see this lame, lame man sitting there, who had been lame since birth, and took him and said, oh, and this is, the, the lame man said, do you have any money? They said, this is that, you've heard this, silver and gold, have I none? That's where Peter and John said, I don't have any money, but I tell you what, I can do this. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. The man got up and walked around. Hundreds of people saw this, blew him away, could not believe what was happening. Caused a huge uproar. Once again, Peter takes the opportunity to preach a sermon. He was good at that. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he knew what needed to be taught. And you know what he preached again? Repentance. Interesting, isn't it? 
very early in the church that the message of repentance was so prominent. And if you recall, if you look back at the um, uh, Old Testament and the prophets, you know what their message was to the people of Israel? Repentance. And it follows through. And it shouldn't be a case where we say, that was good for them and glad we don't need to preach that today. Not so. It's our message that we need to hear is a message of calling us to repentance. Walking in repentance. I don't want to get too far into chapter 3 because I want to start at chapter 4, but that's a very good application for us to understand that that message is the same as today. In chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 4, and again, if, I, I apologize. If some of you are looking for an outline, there is not one. Um, this is not a topical. This is not expository. We're going to go walk through the narrative. I'll give you some of the headings for some of the verses, but I want to be able to walk through this entire passage um, if we have time today. Um, Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, first, they're challenged and arrested. You see, when all this uproar took place in the temple, the leaders, Sadducees, Pharisees, all of them say, this, is, something's got to, this has to stop. Okay, we can't have this again. We just took Jesus out. He's out of the picture, and now these two come along. We need to do something about it. So here they are. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, interrupted their sermon. Hmm. And uh, verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The numbers were increasing because people were hearing and responding. And the leaders decided, let's take them out, let's get them out of the, from in front of the temples, stop this influence. People are coming and believing this instead of our message, and get them out of the way. So they arrested them. Now, uh, you can imagine, perhaps, or imagine, perhaps, uh, Peter and John, um, just a few days removed, in a sense, from Jesus being arrested by these same individuals and, and locked up. And it could very well be running through their minds as they sat overnight in prison. We're next. They had just seen Jesus arrested and crucified. And they thought, maybe this is our turn. Perhaps. And some, you know, if, if it were me, I'd be kind of second-guessing. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have gone so heavy on that repent thing. You know, um, maybe we should just kind of change our message a little bit. Uh, I don't think they thought that. My opinion, I don't think they thought because they were led by the Holy Spirit of God to preach a message. And that message was repent. And they were obedient to that. And because of that, they were locked up in prison. Verses, uh, the next day, now, verse 5, the next day the rulers and the elders came and got them. Uh, and verse 7, when they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Now, understand, they could not deny that something was happened, that something had happened. Now, you notice they didn't necessarily say this miracle. Couldn't quite bring themselves to say that in front of all the people. They said, how did you do this? They wanted to know by what power. And uh, Peter and uh, Peter responds with his speech, yet another speech, yet another sermon. Here he goes in verse uh, 8 of chapter 4. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, not to be taken for granted, folks, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
How many times have you or I launched off into something and have not taken the time to ensure that our own lives are right before God? I I have. Sometimes we just have to stop and think. We want to be able to preach at somebody or tell somebody something in our own lives. We can't can't take that for granted. We use that term a lot, filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay. No, no, no. That's a significant, significant issue. And he does not speak except apart from filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then, I, then know this, you and everyone else in Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you completely healed. He is, meaning Jesus is, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Very clearly, Uh, I'm sorry, verse 12. Uh, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, notice what they did not say. They didn't say, I have a right to stand up here and speak this. I have a right to do that. They they might have said that. In fact, we in our American way of thinking, that might be our first thought. It's free speech. I have a right to do this. What they said was not based on their right What they said was based on the compelling work of the Holy Spirit, and they had to share it. They had to share that it's a resurrected Christ that they worship. I think we got caught up in that too much today, saying, I can say this in front of, you know, in front of this people, or I can say this in this situation because it's my right as an American. Well, what if it wasn't? Well, we still were compelled to say it. And they were saying this, they were speaking out because it was there, it was led by the Spirit. They wanted to be obedient to the Spirit. Peter went, basically went on the offensive. Because first, he notice the first thing he says in verse 9, he calls their attention to a good deed done. This was not a crime, folks. It was a good deed. Okay? Secondly, in verse 10, the event that took place was in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified. I like the emphasis, how, how uh, Eric read that with the emphasis. That it was through Jesus, whom you crucified, and God raised from the dead. Pointing out very clearly, this is what happened. So he's going on the offensive here, and then in verse 11 brought to their attention the fact that the Messiah's rejection was predicted in the Old Testament from Psalm 118. So he used the scriptures that they read to say, look, this was predicted. They said that Jesus was going to be rejected. And then in verse 12, he has the audacity to say, salvation is offered to you as well. Uh, Peter was not timid. Well, he was not timid by by personality, but, but he was led by the Holy Spirit of God to say these things. And this was very much aggressive saying, addressing the things that, that, they were, that they were bringing, the charges that they were bringing against him. Well, what do we do? Uh, chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. So this is a, we've got to be careful here. This is a shrewd political move. We've got upwards of 5,000 plus people out there uh, who, who know about this healing that took place. And if we yank them out, rest them, lock them up now, there could be a riot. We don't want a riot. If there's a riot and the Jewish, the Jewish people are rioting over something like this, and the Romans come in and say, what's up, and just start cleaning house. We don't want that. The Romans were the controlling force at that time. So, 
we've got to make a shrewd political move right here. So what they did, what they decided, uh, everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Let them go with a warning. Good political move. Don't cause any stir. Just let them go with a warning. And so they did that. Now notice a couple other things in that passage back in uh, verse 13. They noticed that they had been with Jesus. Um, Not only been with him, but it also carries the strength of had been influenced by him. That's a good question. I don't know if you've heard this application. I've heard this application many times. If you were questioned like this, would people know that you had been with Jesus? They could tell these individuals had been with Jesus for three years. They could tell by their boldness, by their actions, by their love for one another. That's very significant. Because sometimes we are out in the marketplace, we are out somewhere, and people can't even tell the difference. You've been with Jesus. You're, you're no different than anyone else. These men had been with Jesus. And it was noticeable. And note that it was not necessarily a positive statement. The fact that we've been with Jesus may be indicated by a loving, gentle attitude, but also may bring about a a hostile reaction because we gently and firmly refuse to back down from our association with him. I think sometimes we like to say it was a a good thing. Yes, it's a good thing. People notice we've been with Jesus, but because of that, we are bold in what we're speaking. So the leaders did what was politically expedient, release with a warning. Um, verse 18 verse 19 Peter and John replied here is their reply um, to what they said judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard very direct response to a very direct challenge they said This is what we have seen and heard. We can't deny it. We must speak the truth. Now, you notice this very similar statement later on in chapter 5, verse 29, where the situation was much more intense. And what Peter and John say at that point is, we must obey God rather than men. They come right out and say it. And that's an instruction for us. No matter what it is around us that's telling us, say this, or change your message, or make this a little uh, nicer, yes, but speak the truth plainly. And that is what Peter and John were committed to doing. They weren't, their response was not arrogant, nor was it apologetic. But they were prepared to face persecution no matter what. And we, we'll revisit this in the future, but the basis for the persistence of the persecuted church today should be the same basis for our witness. Well, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 23. Uh, let's continue on. On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city. 
to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Just as we gathered to pray, so did this early church in a very powerful prayer. You might note again what they did not pray. They didn't pray for protection and comfort. Not that that's something we should not pray for. Yes. But note that they left that out. That wasn't what they were looking for. It was almost assumed that there was going to be persecution because of the message. They didn't pray that. They also didn't pray God's judgment onto the Jewish leaders. Nothing in there about that. And they also did not rejoice in the so-called victory that God had prevailed over Satan in some way. No. Instead, they worshipped. They quoted scripture. They acknowledged God's sovereignty over the situation and asked for God to reveal himself even further. In this case, specifically through signs and wonders. Not, this prayer was not a hopeful wishing. Now, sometimes we get caught up in that. I don't know, even my own prayer, sometimes as I listen to myself, it's kind of a, you know, I hope this happens and I hope that happens. They, they didn't pray that. They prayed very specifically because this is a pretty intense situation. Okay? Peter and John rested. Peter and John uh, perhaps crucified. What's going to happen to us? What they prayed for was not the protection. It was boldness to do even more. Amazing. Not only that, uh, they asked for God to reveal himself even further. In this case, uh, through signs and wonders. This is prayer for obedience. And it only makes a a passing uh, mention of the crisis when they mention the word threats. That's all. In God's response, verse 31. God's response, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The response, further obedience. More obedience on their part, being faithful to God's word and speaking the truth and proclaiming the word boldly. In addition to that, God allowed something miraculous to happen. He allowed the place to shake. That must have been awesome. That must have been incredible to be there and pray this prayer and feel God's answer right then and there. God was not, ashamed. God was not hesitant in showing the miraculous to his people during the book of Acts. If I can make a note about that, he, we have to be careful not to discount what God can do in the supernatural realm. You see that a lot of the book of Acts. Nor should we swing to the other extreme of making the miraculous the pinnacle of our understanding of God. It is not. In fact, I would say that God uses these intersections with the supernatural, you might call them, as signs. For some, it might be an emotional experience. Um, you might, there might be something truly miraculous that takes place and God does that when he chooses to. But either way, a problem arises And this is human tendency. A problem arises when we seek that experience rather than the God who is using it to draw us to him. Let me illustrate that. Let's suppose I I took a vacation. I've always wanted to go on a vacation to the West Coast and see everything in between. I know that would probably take a year, but I would love to see places like the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, um, 
Golden Gate Bridge and so on. So I took that vacation, came back, and said, let's look at my DVD. I've got tons of pictures on here of this vacation. And on that DVD, you see pictures, uh, page after page, um, of um, pictures of signs. There's a sign to the Grand Canyon. Uh, Yosemite, three miles on the left. Um, Boundary Waters Canoe Area. Yeah. Uh, ahead. Uh, and you say, oh, it's all having those signs. You say, wait, is there another file folder with, like, pictures of these places? Oh, no, I didn't go. I just wanted to see the signs. <laughs> really? Okay. What is up with that? See, those are just signs. And then I ask, so you mean there was more? Duh. Yeah, there was more. That was just a sign announcing the place. You understand that from Scripture, what the miraculous is for? It's a sign to point us to God. And if we become fixated on the sign, that's all there is. It's the God that's out there who wants to draw us to him. That's why he uses it. Too many times, again, human tendency, we go in there seeking the sign. I want the miracle. I had that experience. I want it again. And God says, that's not why I gave you the experience. I wanted you. And when he does draw us to him, you know what the response is on our part? Boldness and obedience. Human tendency, we just want the experience. We just want that to go on again and again and again. And we see a whole bunch of signs. It is him. It is God. He is drawing us to him. Well, not only did the place shake, but... More response. Boy, the effect of this. This is um, verses 32 through 37, the effect of what took place. Uh, all these events coming together, and, I, and oh, I wish we had time to see all of this, that all that God is doing through the book of Acts must have been a tremendous time, exciting time, to see how the Holy Spirit was working. But here's the effect in verses 32 through 37 of the recent events. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was with them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. This is stewardship. This is unity. This is generosity. This is obedience to God's spirit. In verse 33, the New Living Translation reads, Because of their obedience and faithfulness in proclaiming God's word. That's why the blessing came. And see, this sets the stage for the next event. This is the people bringing their excess money and redistributing to the needy among them. Did you know we still do that today? Did you know the first Sunday of each month here in this church? We have our deacons stand at that door. They have their little blue bag. And the money that you put in that bag goes to this body of believers to distribute to those in need. This, was, this is where it came from. That's the responsibility of the deacons and elders to determine with God's discernment where the needs are most critical and be able to distribute. Sometimes, unfortunately, we have to say, I'm sorry, you don't have anything. But that's why we do this. So in addition to the regular money that's given for the operations of this church, there is an additional fund that we use, and it's not prescribed in Scripture as such, but that's how we've chosen to do it, called the Deacon's Fund. And from that, our deacons and elders are then able to distribute to those within the congregation who are in need. You don't always know about it. I don't always know about it in some cases either. Uh, But there are needs that arise. 
And we need to be responsible from this passage and others in the New Testament, we need to be responsible for taking care of those within our, within our assembly. In the next verse, chapter 4, verse 36, we're introduced to yet another person, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. Sound familiar? We'll see him later on. Which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This individual will figure in significantly later on in the book of Acts, and Luke chooses this point to introduce him to us because he was one of those who acted in obedience. He went and sold the field and brought it and laid, it, laid the money at, his, at the, the apostles' feet. It's interesting how this stewardship works, the stewardship of possessions and how they observed it. There might be something in here for us to apply as well. Because you see, um, Anita and I were reading a, a book recently and, and brought out this point that God provides for our every need. That's one of the things we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. God is faithful to do that. And as we were reading, we came to the, a point where, where, where the writer said, do you realize that if God gives you everything you need, and then he happens to give you more, what's that for? It must be to share it, right? Well, I have a hard time with that because, see, here's what I need. Here's what God gives. <laughs> I'll just bump up my needle a bit more. See? Yeah? You do that? That's the temptation. See, we want to say, we, we get the needs and the wants confused. We've got a lot of wants. But if God provides us all we need, and then he gives us some more, that's to share. Think about that. Chapter 5. Now, this is an interesting portion. And again, this is, uh, we're, just, we're moving quickly through this, but uh, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It might be a familiar story to some of you. I don't know if it's one of those like Sunday school stories that we tell often because it's, uh, there's violence um, in there. But this is a significant part of, of the early life of the church that we need to look at. I'm going to look at, it, look at it for a reason this morning. This is the story of Ananias. Ananias um, came with his wife, Sapphira, also, and they sold a piece of property. You see, they saw Barney go and do that, so they said, well, we're going to do that as well. So they went and sold a piece of property. However, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Two things there. He kept some for himself. That's greed. But the more significant thing is he lied. He brought it and said, this is everything. Peter, by God's grace, by his discernment, knew that and says, you've lied. Not only have you kept some for yourself, but you lied about it. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Understand something. The offenses you and I are guilty of whether it be in the church or against one another are not pointed at the other person they're offenses at God 
So you want to take it lightly and say, you know, I didn't mean that. Okay, let me, let me back up and restate what I told you so it's not quite a lie. No. See, this offense was not against Peter, John, Barnabas, or anybody else. It was offense against God. That's what our offenses are. Wow, that, kind of, that stops me in my tracks when I think about that. Because I'm so prone to offenses. There's so many things that I do that are wrong. They're not offenses against you, my brothers and my sisters. They're offenses against God. That's significant. And he knows that. If anybody's able to discern what's going on in my heart. When, I, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. See, all who heard what had just happened about the lame man, this is a great religion. I want to get involved in this. The lame are healed. And then come a few days later and look what happens. Ananias went and lied to the assembly, lied to Peter, lied to God, fell down and died. Wow. About three hours later, his wife came in. This is verse 7. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the, play, the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she lied. That's the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in, finding her dead. Busy guys carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You see, this type of thing, this is what God means about purity. He wants his bride, that's us, the church, pure for his bridegroom, that's Jesus. But too often, we, because we don't like stories like this, we only want the good healing stories, land on these. But it's the more difficult and very necessary part of church life, and that is called church discipline. We don't like to talk about that. It's not a pleasant subject. But God is very interested in that because he wants a pure church. He wants a pure bride. And it's up to us to make sure that happens within our assembly. And that means holding people accountable. And that's not a pleasant thing either. That means brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters asking those questions and saying, what about this and this and this? And have you done this and do you understand this? And having somebody that is willing to come up to you and say, brother, sister, I need to talk to you about something. Now, we don't want to do that. You know what? Let somebody else do it. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll tell one of the elders or the pastor and they can go talk to them. Now, it doesn't work that way. We'll talk about that later on, about the one another's within our church. But this, as an element of a healthy church, is very, very significant that it's pure. That God's, that the bride that's being prepared for the bridegroom is pure and holy. Now, this is where I wanted to, to I want to end the, the flyover at this point. Uh, it, it's difficult. I mean, especially, you don't want to end on a, two dead people being carried out of church. I mean, you know, it's a very depressing way to end things. But... There's some points in here I want to kind of review and go back through and understand some of the different things that we've already pointed out that apply to us here and day, here and now today. Um, what do we want for a health? What we, we do want a healthy church, right? Whether a church is 10 people or 100 people or 10,000 people, these principles apply. Size is not significant. 
But here are some elements that I pulled out of there. Um, and you could find more, I'm sure. But in that short passage, verse 2, what they did was teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrected Christ. That was the core of what they did. These other things, these programs are good and we need them, but that's not why we do church. We do church because we want to teach the resurrected Christ and proclaim him to those that don't believe. That's why we do church. Verse 4, believers were added. This was a transformation of unbelievers, not seeking to, pe- to add people who were already believers. Difference. This is reaching out to those people who do not know Christ and saying, come in, come understand, help, let me help you understand what happened in my life and what God can do in your life. Verse 12, it's a very uncompromising, clear message. There is salvation in no other name except Jesus. Now, we've heard that here, and many of us here kind of accept that, and we, we know that, but I tell you what, you go out there and you hear a lot of other different things. Well, it's not just Jesus, okay? If you believe in, in Allah, if you just believe in this, you'll still get to the same place. No, I'm sorry, that's not the case. That's not what Scripture teaches. John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Salvation, there's no salvation, there's salvation in no other name except Jesus' name. Verse 12. Verse 13, the driving force behind the effectiveness of the people comes from having spent time with Jesus. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things. They noticed that these were unschooled, ordinary men. They hadn't gone to seminary. This is simply a case of having been with Jesus and being filled with the Spirit. Verse 20, Testimonials, evidence of God's word proclaimed. That's yet another indication or illustration of what a healthy church might include. And then a very significant indication or illustration of what a healthy church might include. Verses 24 through 30, prayer. When they got together after this event, after they were arrested, and it was iffy as to whether or not they'd be crucified, or who knows what would happen. What they do when they came back together? They didn't go to Sox game, Bears game, Cubs game. No, stopped, prayed. They invested that time in prayer, and it has a purpose behind it. It wasn't help us to feel better. It was grant us boldness. Because they knew there was going to be more things ahead. If it was just this, is this just a warning? They're not going to listen to that warning. They know, compelled by the Spirit, that they must continue to speak boldly God's name. And with those threats from the Jewish leaders, they knew it's very real and very true in the future that we're going to be persecuted. So in light of that, Lord, grant us boldness. That was their prayer. And verse 31, another indication or illustration of a healthy church, answered prayer. God did that, gave them boldness, filled them with his Holy Spirit. He answered their prayers. They watched for that. And verse 32, a united body, one heart and one soul, united around a common goal. That was another indication, of yet another indication of a healthy church was that they had one goal in mind, one, they were united in body, they had a same purpose. In fact, it uses the word heart and soul, I believe, in that verse. It was they were knit together as one, united in what they wanted to accomplish. 
Also in that verse, there's community. They actually had a love and affection for one another. We'll talk more about that later. That's a big one. Where they actually love one another. They have the agape love, uh, the unconditional, also the phileo love, the love and affection for one another. It's one of the indications or an illustration of what a healthy church looks like. And also in verse 32, stewardship. They recognized that the things that they had, they were just renting. They were tenants here on this earth. They didn't want to invest a whole lot of time into something that they didn't own to begin with. It belonged to God. They understood that. They recognized that's one of the indications, one of the marks, or one of the illustrations of what a healthy church looks like. And then verses 1 through 11, the church discipline. Acknowledging that, yes, sin does happen in the church. There's forgiveness. They, they can come back to the Lord. They can repent. But God is a holy God. He is a loving God, yet he is pure and holy, and he wants his bride to be holy as well. None of this can take place unless something else happens. And this is where I wanted to land. Because see, we're up on Google Earth, you know, and kind of like, where are we going to come in for a landing from this? Here it is. All of these points, all of this points to the conclusion that I came to as I contemplated over 12 months and studied the book of Acts. We each have a personal responsibility for personal holiness and a close walk with God. That's elementary. That is not rocket science. That's very simple and straightforward. But we miss it. Let me say that again. We each have a personal responsibility for personal holiness and a close walk with God, not so that we can be better individuals. It's not why God wants that. You know why it is? So that our spirit-filled contribution to the body of Christ brings glory to God. That's why he wants it. And we just want to gloss over that because that personal holiness thing, that's for them. They're the bad ones. Me? I'm okay. It's a certain point. No. This points directly at us. Let me restate it again. We each have a personal responsibility for personal holiness and a close walk with God. Not so that we can be better individuals, but so that our spirit-filled contribution to the body of Christ brings glory to God. Amen? Pray with me. Our God and Father in heaven, we have so much to learn. This is information, and by your Spirit's grace, is challenging to many of us in the sense that we realize in our own lives that uh, in many ways our own lives don't match up to what needs to take place for a Spirit-filled contribution to the body of the Christ. Father, for those of us that realize this, Teach us. Show us those areas that need to be brought in conformity of your, to your will. For those that don't realize that, Father, bring them to that realization that each one of us was responsible before you for personal holiness in order that your church may be glorified. For this we give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, prayer counselors will be coming in a moment. If you would like someone to pray with you this day, I would encourage you to do that. Um, They're here to pray with you. Whatever need that you might have, please take advantage of that. 
uh, having been on the receiving end of these prayer counselors, these men and women, I assure you um, that they bring your request, bring your burdens before the Lord, and I would encourage each one of you uh, that are feeling that today that you come forward.